Welcome everybody to Happy Hours Stretch and Stir Fry. Today we talk to someone who I have to say is one of the most impressive young sailors I've ever spoken to. She epitomizes the next generation of professional sailor, not just relying on sailing skills, but a, a real drive and ambition to do better. Her name's Emily Nagel, and I'm sure you're going to see a lot more of her in the future. So, Fred, you've been lucky enough to sail with Emily. Um, give us a bit of insight to her career so far. Well, Emily, she really hit the ground running. She was relatively late into yachting. Family didn't sail, but she rung on doorbells, uh, knocked on people's office doors. She made her way in the sport through enthusiasm and uh, drive and determination. She did the Youth America's Cup. She's represented Bermuda. She then uh, did the Volvo with Axo Noble uh, and has latterly been super involved with the technical side and the data side on the GP50s or Sail GP. And we were lucky enough to have her with us for our Fastnet prep last year and for the race on the Maxi 72 Sorka. Thanks, Starfry. If you're a young student out there right now, team racing, match racing, hoping to maybe build a career in yachting, you do worse than listening to Emily's chat because I think she's a real inspiration. Emily, welcome to uh, Happy Hour with Stretch and Stir Fry. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was good to have you. And um, we got Stir Fry on the other line. Stir Fry, how are you doing? How are you, Stretch? And good evening, Emily. I hope you're both well. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I, last time I spoke to you, Stir Fry, I think we'd done quite well on a bottle of rum chatting to Freddie Carr. So I think tonight I'm going to just take it a bit more easy, if that's all right. Well, it's a little earlier in the evening, and uh, probably so we have a slightly more eloquent guest, so we should take it a little more easy and listen very, very intently to what she's going to offer us. Yeah. <laughs> I know about that. We, we should really try and tell everyone a bit more about Emily, because, Emily, you've, you've come out of uh, the blocks pretty fast and done a huge amount in a very quick period of time, and I'm kind of intrigued to know how this all came to pass. Uh, and I've got one question to start with, though, which is, why are you in Weymouth and not the beautiful Bermuda? Well, uh, I was hiding in Bermuda for most of my life growing up. And then I kind of came over to the UK for university and school. And I wouldn't say I based myself here, but it's kind of ended up being a bit more convenient of a location. Don't know if you've uh, ever flown to Bermuda, but it's not exactly <laughs> the cheapest. Yeah. So not the ideal place to kind of base myself for mm. the whole sailing lifestyle. So I've kind of spent the past few months in Australia, came back for a week to kind of visit friends, see family, sail my moth. And that's ended up dragging on a little longer than planned. So you're now fully locked down in Weymouth? Yeah. And is the moth in a box on the way to Weymouth or is the moth indisposed somewhere else? The moth is here in Weymouth, (laughs) but it is behind a locked gate. Gathering dust. Well, we we look forward to going sailing again soon. Yeah, for now I'm just sanding the foils over and over again. And and what what is your moth? Just avail us of what uh, model it is. It's uh, one of the older rockets, so it's got solid wings, but it's not quite at the same level as some of the guys' really pimped out ones. And just, I mean, to give us oldies a bit of a a feel for it, the, the, the difference in price between a go sailing at the weekends and a top of the range moth would be how much? Um, so they're pretty much ranging at the moment between kind of five grand for a really basic one that will get you up in foiling, but you'll probably have a lot of boat work to do 
up to, I mean, there's guys who have spent 25, 30 grand on theirs, but I'm, right. I'm definitely not at, <laughs> at that point. You will be soon. So, Emily, are you, are you intending on, I know you basically never stop travelling, it seems, but um, in between those bits, are you going to start taking that moth sailing a little bit more seriously? Are we going to see you whizzing around in all different regattas? Uh, I'd definitely like to. Um, <laughs> the current plan was to be able to race at the Worlds this year, which are in Weymouth. Although there was a little bit of a scheduling crash with Sail GP. So we'll see what happens with whether either of those events actually gets to run this year. But we'd definitely like to start racing a bit more in it. Um, there's quite a good training squad down here of, kind of all of the Olympic class guys who are based here anyway. Mm-hmm. So. Not a bad spot. I know you've been hanging out with a lot of the AC guys um, in various countries. Um, and I, I sort of seem to think that when you become an, ace, an America's Cup sailor, all you do is go moth sailing. So I'm, I'm presuming it rubbed off on you when you saw them just endlessly sailing their moths in Bermuda. Oh, yeah, it definitely rubbed off. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, don't quite have the same sort of income to be able to afford to go moth sailing all the time. My work does require me to be at a desk a little bit more than uh, those guys. Uh, but the, the moth froth, as they call it, is definitely real. And there's um, definitely a bit of envy when I see them out there. Yeah, I bet. We need to get down to Weymouth stretch. I know. I'm, I think we've got a... Have you been on a moth yet, Stirfrey? I, I, tr- I trod on one once, getting out of the shower. <laughs> <laughs> Would you, I actually have sailed a moth, but it was in the early 80s, mm. so... I actually owned a moth for quite a long time. Um, unfortunately, it was a British moth, which isn't quite as radical. But uh, I think it's still my favourite boat. Um, and and uh, a guy, an amazing guy called John Claridge used to teach us, who was actually at the time the International Moth World Champion in the days before foils, but a proper legend. Let's get back to uh, how you got into sailing. Because I know that you're not from a sailing family, are you? No. Um, well, I grew up in Bermuda and... I mean, surrounded by water all the time. Uh, but my parents had nothing to do with sailing. But one of our neighbours was a very keen sailor, uh, campaigned for the Olympics for Bermuda and built his daughter an optimist. And she had no interest in going out in it. So one day convinced me to just give it a go. I was 10 years old. And yeah, from there I was just addicted. So my parents put me into some lessons and was pretty much racing straight away. Uh, 10's quite old to start sailing in Bermuda. Uh, so I kind of moved straight into kind of like the intermediate kind of age group and they were racing. So I started racing. Is it, um, is it an apocryphal story or is it true that um, now as one of our really top young uh, offshore sailors, but actually you were, you'd really followed avidly the antics of uh, Ellen MacArthur and hence named your first oppie Kingfisher. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, clearly doing some research there. Um, yeah, um, my my grandma actually bought me the book for Ellen MacArthur's book uh, pretty much as soon as I started sailing and very quickly went, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Um, named the boat Kingfisher, dreamed about doing kind of all the offshore sailing, but didn't really get into any of the offshore stuff until... Really, I was kind of at university. Um, while I was kind of at boarding school, I did a little bit of kind of your channel crossings and pottering about 
IRC, a little bit of toolship stuff, but I was very academically focused and kind of thinking more realistically about university and never really imagined being able to combine sailing with a career. And then, yeah, that whole normal job didn't really happen. <laughs> so I think Stirfra and I would love to hear, I, mean, I think one of, one of the most extraordinary stories really was how you managed to jump on and and be an integral part of a, a Volvo Ocean Race boat. Can you tell us the background of, of how you met up with Simeon and, and how, you, how you got selected? Because it was a hell of a leap from, I think you would admit, an un, almost unknown sailor into um, being a key part of a major campaign like Axo Nobel. Yeah, it was um, definitely thrown into the deep end a little bit and definitely came out of nowhere. I remember there was a couple of sailing anarchy posts when I first started getting involved in offshore of just a photo of me being like, who is this person? <laughs> um, which it sounds like, oh, that's a little harsh, but fair enough. I had just graduated from university at Southampton in 2016 and went back to Bermuda uh, straight away to be part of the Youth America's Cup. I'd gone into the Bermudian team, so we were kind of training full time out there um, and I was determined to get involved with the cup to kind of a higher level. I really wanted to be involved with an actual cup team on the design side um, as I did naval architecture at uni. So I annoyed the hell out of most of the teams, um, emailed everyone, tried to introduce myself to all of the different designers and boat builders and anyone I could and eventually got an internship with SoftBank um and so i was working with them kind of whenever i wasn't off training with team bda and through that ended up meeting simeon um, as he was one of the backup grinders and then kind of about march just before the cup i ended up kind of moving to softbank full-time just because they offered me a full-time job I thought that was the best thing to do and in the end that <clears throat> worked out quite well because Simeon was there and uh, at this point I was just so amazed being surrounded by all of these professional sailors. Um, I was too scared to talk to him for the first week. <laughs> um, just being like, oh my god, this is an actual Volvo skipper. Like, this is insane. Like, what is life right now? Um, and I kind of built up confidence to talk to him and just find out more about, you know, how do you get into a team, like, what skills do you need? Like just as shorting was kind of my initial thoughts was this edition, I'll get into a short team. I'll learn the boats, learn who's who and how everything works. And then maybe next time I'll be bigger and stronger and I might stand a better chance. Um, and at this point I was a little bit obsessed with the gym. Um, I knew that if I was to have any chance of getting into professional sailing, I had to be able to keep up with the boys. Uh, so I'd go to the gym before work and do whatever grinding workout had been left up on the board by the guys the night before. And it was all a little bit obsessive. Um, I, mean, I have to say, I, I, um, and I'd like to um, hasten um, or say the fact that um, contrary to what Sturfry says, I'm not a stalker, but I have been doing my research. And I, and I saw you in, in, the, in the gym, in the boxing ring with the Oracle guys being basically punched oh. in the stomach quite hard. <laughs> 
<laughs> possibly the most embarrassing video you possibly could have found me. <laughs> yeah, I I was lucky enough to kind of get to do a bit of work with all of the Oracle guys through kind of a Red Bull project that I was involved with. Um, and that involved going to the gym one day with Jimmy and Oz and Badger, the strength and conditioning coaches, and got put through my faces and, yeah, got beat up in a boxing ring. Hasn't <laughs> done you any harm, Emily. Yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, Definitely entertaining. <laughs> so that was part, part of the journey to the Volvo Asian race. <laughs> yeah, just toughening me up a little bit. Um, and I guess, yeah, Simeon saw that and... Eventually, I mean, it was probably a solid three months of me annoying him with questions and wanting to know more. And one day while we were getting the boat out of the water, he just kind of turned to me and asked if I'd, what I was doing at the end of the month and if I'd come for a sail. And, and how, how well did you know the other guys at that stage? Uh, Simeon was the only one on the team that I knew. <laughs> um, I'd never met anyone else on board. Um, so it was definitely being dropped into the deep end. I remember I got a flight over to Holland and when I'd landed, I had no information about where I was going, who I was meeting, other than just an address um, in Scheveningen. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Um, and rocked up there, the whole team were there and it was literally a case of I arrived and 15 minutes later, we were taking the CEO at the time out, out for a sale and just got dropped on the 65 and was like, off you go. Tough baptism. Entertaining. Yeah. So I would imagine the Axo Noble thing, well, it's, it's definitely contributed massively to the person that you are, but it obviously was an emotional roller coaster. given that there were a few issues before the start. Can you talk about those? Oh, yeah, that was definitely... Um, not what I expected um, my first Volvo to be like. Um, and it wasn't something I saw coming either at all. I mean, a lot of people have been like, oh, you know, surely there were issues from the beginning. And from, I still don't fully understand what happened. Just, um, just, just for, the, for the listeners, just elaborate a little on okay. uh, as a crazy version. To summarise, we did the prologue of the race, which involved just taking the boat from Lisbon to Alicante. And on arrival in Alicante, the week before the start, um, our skipper, Simeon, was fired, which none of us saw coming. Um, so a bit blindsided there. Uh, the following week, we ended up, or well, Simeon obviously then left. There was a bit of a court case that lasted a week. During that week, we decided that Brad Jackson, who had been one of our watch captains, uh, was kind of the best option for Skipper. So he got promoted to Skipper, and we brought in Rome Kirby uh, to fill in the missing spot. And um, we trained like that for a week. And then on the Friday night, we got told that uh, Simeon had won the court case and should be Skipper. So it was a bit of a reshuffle. Uh, Rome flew home, and then... The politics continued over the weekend and ultimately on Sunday morning at the start of the race, three of our sailors decided that 
it wasn't in their best interests to be with the team. So we had a little bit of a hectic start <sighs> as we basically tried to find people to fill the missing spots. I remember we ended up, well, we got Roscoe, who was kind of our onshore navigator to fill the spot of navigator. Um, and then stole Antonio from uh, Scallywag's shore team uh, yeah. to take the other spot on board. Now we're starting on the stories. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. So that we basically motored, motored out to the start line and we were kind of sitting there chatting. You know, we had at least gone the boat ready when like we were all set up for the start. But then I'm pretty sure it was Luke Malloy turned around and was just like, so who's doing what? Like, <laughs> what roles is everyone doing now? I mean, we'd lost Yoka, who was our, like, he was our main helmsman for the start. Yeah. So yeah. kind of vital. So Nikolai took his position, but then it meant we needed someone to fill Nikolai's spot. And we'd never sailed in that configuration. So it was definitely a bit on the fly. And the team essentially grew and improved and some of the original sailors returned. And then I think you can hopefully um, put me right if I'm wrong. Last five legs, you were probably the top scoring boat. Is that right? Um, well, it was pretty pretty close to that. The first three legs were definitely constant shuffling we had a few crew changes um jules came back uh which was great and definitely brought a bit more consistency to the team just having that experience on board is invaluable Dodge, don't budge exactly yeah um but then kind of a couple of trimmer changes luke wasn't allowed to do the southern ocean leg because of medical reasons so then we had to bring in someone else for that um, it was just a lot of chopping and changing, which made those first few legs pretty hard to be consistent. And then the team had their first win coming from Hong Kong to Auckland. And then from there, there was definitely better results. I don't know if we were... T- I think Brunel probably pipped us on the overall scores for those last five legs. Brazil to Newport, we didn't do as well. But the rest of them, I mean nice little record on the transatlantic and definitely up there with the red boats for the remainder of the legs which was a much better feeling yeah yeah from the start and and, you know lasting memories you know give us the, the best and the worst the crazy thing is that like the best and the worst memories are so close together um i mean like there's kind of two moments that were beyond amazing. And I mean, the big one being Cape Horn. I mean, it's something I dreamed of since I was little and just seeing the mountains just like appear out of nowhere was just so lost for words at the time and so excited. But at the same time, it was this huge mix of emotion because we just had the 12 worst days of sailing ever i mean it snowed every day there was hail and the incident with fish had happened so we were all pretty heartbroken and shaken about that so to have that right next to like achieving something i dreamed of since i was 10 years old yeah pretty crazy at the time um and i think everyone was kind of in that same really weird position where you're just excited to be there and relieved to have made it that far but at the same time 
pretty heartbroken about the fact that you know you've had had a mate who's been dreaming of the same thing and he's lost mm. his life trying to achieve it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we all doff our caps appropriately. Yeah. So after the Volvo, did you you know any come down or? The wheel just kept turning and you just moved straight on to the next project. To be honest, I, I was pretty, yeah, there was a massive come down afterwards. Um, I hadn't really, I mean, it's pr- pretty much my fault. Like during the race, I was just so focused on the race. I didn't really think at all about, you know, what happens after. Um, so I didn't really have any plans. All I knew was I wanted to keep sailing um, but at that point, I didn't really know how to keep sailing and not just end up in an office job. Um, so the first kind of four or five months after the Volvo, I wouldn't say I was a mess, but like I had no idea what to do, how to get rides, how to get going. work. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that definitely took a bit of time to figure out and it was kind of around that time I decided, you know, I needed, I needed that side gig of, you know, do I go into like being a sailmaker or enable architecture? Like what's going to benefit me, but not keep me indoors the whole time. So I kind of started to lean towards this data analysis um, idea of, you know, being able to use my degree for something, but still get out on the water as much as possible. Uh, So started kind of studying that and still annoying the hell out of everyone I could about going sailing um, and just getting on the water as much as physically possible. Well, it seems like a very wise wise idea that you came up with this with data analysis because it's um, front of mind for every single cup team, sail GP team. It's, you know, sailing is now so analysis driven. Um, I mean, could you have imagined that within a year and a half, you'd be um, working with all the bigs again, but, you know, on a serious level of analysing some of the best teams in the world. Uh, it was pretty crazy. It ramped up very fast. I mean, it went from, and if I did a week-long internship um, with K&D, sailing performance to do all the TP52s over in Valencia for that event, literally just trying to learn the software, then doing some analysis for friends with boats but all for free none of it paid just just for experience and then managed to convince uh, Scott Babbage who works for SailGP you know let, let me come along to one of the events like you don't have to pay me I'll sort out my flights accommodation I just just want to learn and yeah, after that, managed to get work with the British team. And um, Emily, can you tell our listeners exactly um, what this performance data analysis is, or what it entails? Yeah. Basically, I'm the computer nerd. With SailGP, I sit onshore um, and get all of the live numbers off of the boats. So all of the teams are constantly firing off data. And there's 1,800 data channels. So it's literally everything from boat speed and angles, you know, when a button is pressed for, you know, the wing or dropping a board, just literally everything. So I get all of this data back live and it's my job to kind of go through it all and try and help make informed decisions about how the guys are sailing the boat. 
so especially the last year uh, when kind of all of these guides were new to the boat so it was a lot about kind of looking at how the different teams were sailing it in different ways um, and trying to figure out kind of the optimal kind of playbook for how things are done on board different modes you know what's the fastest way to sail uh, ac50 or gp50 as it's called now and yet yeah, now it's turned into the nitty-gritty looking at tiny little details because you know well we've now got Ben Ainsley and all of those guys sailing the boat so obviously the Aussies were just a little bit above the rest of the fleet last year and yet Ben came in and essentially schooled them um do they bring a different level of professionalism do they bring a different skill set is it latent talent what what what's different now I mean, you definitely can't argue that there's a l- little bit of talent um, on the helm side. Um, a little bit. I think <laughs> a bit. <laughs> um, but a lot of it as well is just the time in the boats. Um, I mean, those guys have more time foiling than the majority of the teams. Um, and then you look at guys like Goobs and Parco who have been involved with not just, I mean, Goobs has been with wing design since wings first started being developed um, for the cup so if you're going to have anyone trimming a wing he's a pretty good bet to have there and parko is just so technical and detailed with everything that he does i mean you put the three of them together plus uh, our grinders who stayed the same from the previous years who know the boat so well i mean there's no weak link there um and you know the guys we had last year were, were awesome. Like Dylan, Stu, such great guys to work with. Yeah, um, but they just didn't have the same amount of time in a fifty-foot foiling catamaran. Like it was their first year sailing yeah. it. Um, well, these guys have a fair few hours with the cut boats. Yeah. yeah. So when you're when you're studying data live. Um, and please ignore, uh, excuse my ignorance, but you are watching for trends, specific numbers. How does it work? Yeah, it's a lot about kind of looking for trends, um, anything that looks abnormal. It kind of took a long time to kind of figure out what I was looking for. Um, but it's kind of looking at all the different graphs that are produced of a maneuver, say, um, and you can see little details, you know, how wide the boat's pressing out of each manoeuvre and looking for the differences between the different teams. Um, So last year we'd compare a lot on entry and exit angles um, or the timing of a board drop and looking for kind of the minimum boat speed that's hit during manoeuvres. So, you know, if you manage to hold more boat speed, it's going to be a better manoeuvre most of the time. Uh, So just looking at trends like that and trying to find where things are going wrong, if they do go wrong. And given, I mean, you, you alluded to the fact that in the TPs, we use KND quite extensively, and we probably only look at maybe seven, eight, maybe 10 factors in our debriefs. How many more factors would you be debriefing in terms of the cats? Um, it depends a lot on kind of what's happened during the racing. Um, and I'd say this year, it's a much smaller amount you know it's probably 10 little variables that you're kind of focusing on 
Well, last no, year. Is that because the fleet is now so refined that people are learning to sail with more uniformity? So you're you're striving for smaller differences in fewer areas. Exactly. Um, everyone's kind of working out kind of what different modes do, kind of when to press certain buttons and uh, what's better for different wind speeds. So it's definitely the entire fleet has accelerated in its learning curve. While a lot of last year was like, what do we want rudder diff to be at um, the entire time? And how much lift do we want on each board? And it was a lot more varied. A lot of my work would be based on what the sailors wanted to look at at each time. They'd kind of go through phases of being really interested in different things. And that would be the basis for each report. And now it's a bit more simplistic, um, but more detail orientated. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, when you go and sell the moth now, does it help you or hinder you having all this intent now? Uh, it's quite nice to be on the moth actually doing the sailing and not having to look at the numbers. But, but um, it, it must affect, because you have a brain the size of a planet and you can compute numbers and take information and disseminate it, when you go sailing just purely naturally, are you able to totally detach yourself or are you thinking, oh, I should run a little bit more this, I should do that, or I should, you know? I've definitely got the technical nerdy brain on at all times. I can't really get rid of it, <laughs> but... <laughs> I am able to kind of tone it down a little bit, especially kind of, you know, the last time I went out of my moth was the first time in six months having been away. And it's just, you know, those moments of, I uh, just... Just go fast. the boat. Yeah. Cool. Amazing. Stretch, come on, you've got some great questions lined up. I know you have. You're <laughs> nodding. Well, actually, I'm, I'm always much more interested in, because I'm too thick to understand any of the technical stuff. Um, I'm much more interested in actually... Um, Emily, what, what you're, you're sort of seeing the next uh, five years hopefully entail for your sailing career because there's no doubt that you're a wonderfully driven individual and therefore you must have a few quiet ideas as to what you're wanting to be doing next. So what would your um, dream scenario be? Uh, I really struggle with kind of one individual thing. Um, I just love being out on the water, whatever it is, um, but... I do really miss the offshore, which, I mean, I'm sure there were times during the bubble where I was telling myself I'm never doing this again, but I, I'd love to be back out there. Yeah. So that's that's definitely on the cards and thinking about it. But then also just the past year, I've really enjoyed getting involved with kind of all the big boat racing and getting to learn from some epic sailors. I mean, the sailing I've done with Sorcha was just so enjoyable just getting to learn from all of these guys who know so much so i'd love to do more of that you know, look at the tp52 circuit it's definitely you know, one of the dreams <clears throat> to be able to race with like that caliber of racing yeah. come on stir fry you need to help emily out come on <laughs> this is your moment <laughs> I, oh, I, I was lucky enough to have emily well we were lucky enough to have emily with us for the fastnet and the fastnet training that we did and brought an enormous sense of calm, hugely organised. Yeah, she was a bonus. We, 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 we were lucky to have her. I'm surprised that you haven't been snapped up by more teams more often. Hopefully see what happens after all of this. For well, now, I've got my uh, to you, focus you on. Won't be short, you won't be short of offers. I guarantee that. Guarantee yeah, that. absolutely. I think hopefully 
lockdown might loosen a little bit in the next few months and you can just go blasting for a while. That'd be quite nice. Just send it. Yeah, exactly. Now tell me, on the on the moth... Sorry to... I, we're, we're just old and we're keen to... to, to we, we, are, we are desperate to become mothies. One of these wasps stretch, we could go halves on it. <laughs> it it's, looks cheap as chips. Will it get us up and foiling? It depends what you want to get out of it. Like, if you want to just go foiling, yeah, the wasps a great option. Like... They're easy to sail. You'll get like you'll have no issues sailing it. Um, but the problem is if you start to get competitive, because the moth just goes so much quicker. Like the wasp goes fast. You get up, you get foiling, but a good wasp is still slower than a cheap moth. So it kind of mm. depends what you're after. Um, and would it be fair to say that the wasp is fairly indestructible, though? Because Stretch and I will be sailing it, so it will need to be. Not together. We won't be going out two up, sorry. <laughs> that would be quite a comical scene. Um, but <laughs> I wouldn't say they're indestructible, but it's definitely robust enough to to take a few crashes. While the moth does have a small habit of yeah, falling apart. Yeah, they're quite fragile. Okay. It's a wasp. It's a wasp. It's, I think we'll the key is, as soon as lockdown is over, Emily, if it's all right and you're not travelling around the world, which you probably will be by then, maybe Stirfry and I can come out with our new wasps and you can teach us how to, how to foil, because, you know, we know it's the future. we just got to we just got to man up now. Oh, definitely. You should come down to Weymouth. There's so <laughs> many foilers out here. It's great fun. Stretch, we're not buying one each and they're not going to be new. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about getting someone else in as a third ownership as well, someone who has no interest. Yeah, well, uh, Chris Mason would be good for a moth, I'd have thought. We'd get him on board as well. Actually, yeah, and Richard's quite good at foiling. <laughs> yeah, actually, Richard could teach us. Um, Emily, we're going to run out of time, and I have to say, I think it's been a really amazing listen to you. I think you've packed outrageous oh. amounts into such a short period of your career. I, I cannot wait to see what you get up to next, but I have a feeling it's going to be a hugely successful and brilliant career. I've got no doubt about that. Oh, thanks so much for having me and uh, hopefully see you guys on the water soon. <laughs>